Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Dr. Tim Black. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for who you are. You are the Alpha and the Omega, God. That means that you are the beginning and you are the end and you are never-ending. And you just continue on. And we are finite. But God, we come to you this morning because we know in your love that you call us to yourself. And so we ask that as we meet with you this morning that you will be glorified. God, that we will seek you with all of our heart, Father, as we come together this morning. We desire you, you alone, uh, Give us what we need, Father. And so we just trust you this morning, and we thank you for all that you do for us. Even in the midst of a storm, such as what we're experiencing, God, you are there, and you provide for us. And Father, we recognize this morning that we are a sinful people, Lord. Um, Many times we walk away from you when you are calling to us. And Father, so I ask that as we meet together this morning, Lord, that you would cleanse us, that you would take away the sin that continues to uh, work in our lives. Help us to seek after you, God, and that in our time of need, that we will find you. We're thankful, Lord, for the ways that you provide. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us this place where we can meet together. And we're trusting you for a space that we could even enjoy um, fellowshipping together in a more continuous way, um, in a space that we could meet in throughout the week. So we're trusting you for that, God, and ask that you would move. But you provide so abundantly for us. And as we're before you this morning, God, there are things on our hearts that are uh, troubling us, and we recognize that we can come to you with these things. And so we pray for some of the needs of our congregation. God, I pray for Steve and Laura Rodriguez. God, as Laura is um, suffering from just the ravages of ALS, I pray that you would comfort her, that you would provide for Steve, God, that you would help them to sense your presence, um, that you'd help us as a community to rally around them as they go through this. And God, we just trust Laura to you. And Father, for the other needs that are before us, um, Lord, we thank you for um, the ways you are working to bring healing and health to people that we've been praying for. Lord, we pray for Ted White this morning, that you would continue to heal him. We thank you, Lord, for the ways you've worked in Claude's body to bring him health and healing, God. We praise you for that. And Lord, there's so many other things before us that... um, We can't remember to bring them to you, but they're on our hearts, and we ask that you would move. So this morning, as we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus in using the prayer that he prayed by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you that we can open your word and that you can speak to us through it. And we ask that your spirit would guide our time together this morning, Lord. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The number of displaced people in the world has risen to a new high of nearly 90 million in 2020. And I think it's probably gone even higher since then. And displaced people are those that are forced to leave their homes due to conflict or violence or some other disaster. They include refugees. They include asylum seekers and people that are internally displaced within their country. Over 6 million per year find themselves in this situation, and it's getting worse, which means that overall, over 1% of the world's population is displaced. Here in New York City, we see this crisis living and breathing before us as over 100,000 immigrants have arrived here since the spring of last year with many of them having been displaced as well. Why are they leaving their homes? The majority of displaced people, over 55 million, were internally displaced in their birth countries because to survive, they had to flee. They understand up close what it means to be an exile in search of a new home. These exiles experience personally What our passage this morning says is the story for all of us. A few months ago, I preached a sermon titled Strangers in a Strange Land. And if you remember, God's people were hauled off to Babylon as exiles. And the prophet Jeremiah told them that they had work to do. They were not to just try to eke out an existence in a strange land that was hostile to them. But they were to seek the welfare of Babylon and make it their home. Jeremiah called them to impact their city for the glory of God, even though they were still exiles. They were not to forget who they were, but were to live for the benefit of the city and its neighbors in a way that would bring about flourishing. God was in control. They were his people, and they were supposed to be on mission. This is an important backdrop for us to remember this morning. We are supposed to be those people as we live in our city into whatever parts of the city that God calls us. But the first thing is that all humans are actually exiles. This sermon today is actually the prequel of that sermon, Strangers in a Strange Land. This is like watching Star Wars in 1977. The New Hope, you remember that? which is episode four in the Star Wars series. And then you watch episode five, which is Empire Strikes Back, and episode six, which is the return of the Jedi, right? And then the next one that's released is episode one, which is the Phantom Menace. Very strange. This is episode one this morning, okay? The book of Genesis details why we are the way we are, and it all goes back to the reality that we are no longer home. 
We are exiles, and we were made exiles by God. Being an exile is dehumanizing. You're uprooted from a place that you've known all of your life, and you find yourself in a place that is totally foreign to you. Maybe you have an idea of what that feels like as you sit here this morning. You might be here in a city studying, and you've left a community that knows you and loves you, and with a family that protects you and cares for you. It had familiar feelings to you, and you had a sense of belonging. Now all of that is gone as you're trying to find ways to settle in and get used to unfamiliar surroundings. This is not what you would consider home. We understand home to be a place where we fit in and have a sense of belonging and rootedness. You understand your context. You're an insider. If you've grown up in a small town, you probably would understand where I'm coming from, from a small community in Michigan that feels still a bit like home for me in many ways. Um, Before I went off to college, my life was defined by this town of about 800 people with a high school class of 57. Our families all knew each other, and regardless of where I have lived since then, when I go back to visit my family, I have a sense at some level that I am home. The community feels familiar. I still care about the high school sports teams. And I know many of the family names that are seen on the headstones in the local cemetery. And some of my family members are there as well. But regardless of what that community means to you or your hometown, or that community means to me or your hometown means to you, I'm an exile and so are you. We have times when, even though we've settled in, things don't still feel quite right. The problem is obvious. Genesis 3, verses 23 and 24 say, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Adam, our forefather, was banished by his creator. The human race, all of us, are banished from the place that was our home. And then it says in verse 24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Garden of Eden was this incredibly beautiful place that was perfect. It had everything that we needed to thrive. Adam was formed from its soil and given stewardship with Eve to serve as caretakers of this wonderful garden that was created for their flourishing. And when they sinned, they were driven out of their perfect home, barred from ever returning. Picture the cherubim, if you will, these fearsome creatures that when seen would bring terror to us. They each have a flashing sword that's waving back and forth to keep Adam and Eve from ever returning. Imagine the desolation that Adam and Eve felt at this expulsion from the garden. They were forced from a world that was made for them into a world that was both hostile and dangerous. They became exiles. They felt it, and we feel it as well. That's what the Bible is saying to us. Eva Hoffman was a Polish-Jewish intellectual whose parents and family were dislocated when they were forced from Poland during the Holocaust. She understood what it meant to be exiled. She writes that since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, 
Is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? But she goes on in the essay to say that those of us who have been estranged from our literal physical home very often get this deep nostalgia for it and say, if I could just get back there, if I could get back to that place with those people, then the emptiness I'm feeling, the dissatisfaction I'm feeling would be healed. The deep nostalgia we have for these physical places, if we actually get back to them, still does not completely satisfy us. The sense of homeliness, home, homelessness actually signifies something deeper. She says further, we are ejected from our authentic self, an ideal sense of belonging, attuning with others and ourselves eludes us. That's the human condition. But what does it mean to be exiles? What does it mean that we're homeless and exiles? There are plenty of opinions to describe why we feel this way. Karl Marx would say the fundamental alienation that human beings experience is economic. If we could just level the playing field, everything would be okay. Sigmund Freud said the fundamental alienation is psychological. Emil Durkheim, a 20th century sociologist, said the fundamental alienation we experience is social. And then Martin Heidegger would say that our alienation is existential. And you know what the Bible says to all of this? They're all right. In fact, it's all in this text. What's fascinating about the central part of this text is how all those different aspects of alienation of being estranged from what we were made for, are all there. The Bible goes deeper than any of those thinkers and says, yes, you are all right. But the depth of the alienation goes so, so much deeper. So let's first take a look by walking backward through this text. Let's look at verses 16 to 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, excuse me, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're not physically at home because we're alienated from nature. So, for example, in verse 16, childbearing has become both painful and dangerous. Verses 17 and 18 say that the ground is cursed and work is painful, futile, and it drains you. It's not easy. It's difficult. It wears you down. This will be the story of your life until it's over and you turn back into dust. Not a cheery thought. Have you ever felt the full futility of this passage? My dad was a school teacher, and in the summer he had this massive garden that needed continuous weeding. I was convinced as a kid that the only reason he had children so that he had weeders for his garden. <laughs> it was hard work. No one had to convince me that work was painful and draining. 
Any of you that have lived on a farm know exactly what this feels like. Now, it wasn't as bad as I make it out to be, but anyway, it was work. And for a young kid, it felt massive. But the saddest and most heart-wrenching part of this passage is that small phrase right at the end. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There are lots of books that try to tell modern people not to be afraid of death. Death is just a natural part of life. But many others would disagree and instead agree with the Bible that death is not normal. It's not intended. It's actually not right. It's not what we were created for. Welsh poet Dylan Thomas says we should rage against the dying of a light. Albert Camus, the French novelist and philosopher, agrees by saying that death makes life absurd. The fact that we're going to die makes everything in our lives meaningless, empty, and absurd. Why would they say these things? Because even as atheists, they know that death makes life meaningless. Life is meaningless if death takes it away. We lose the joy of relationships. Annie Dillard captures this quite starkly when she says, and you get caught holding one end of a love when your father drops and your mother, when a land is lost or a time and your friend blotted out, gone. Your brother's body spoiled and cold, your infant dead and you dying. You reel out love's long line alone, stripped like a live wire, loosing its sparks to a cloud like a live wire loosed in space to longing and grief everlasting. That's such a bleak quote. But I think it captures quite well just the hopelessness of what death looks like outside of Christ. We have meaningful relationships, though. We experience love, which makes our lives meaningful. Death makes life seem absurd because death strips us of the relationship that give life meaning. Death eventually takes all of these relationships away. Death is not right, and we feel it. Many of us have actually felt it keenly this year. The Bible tells us as long as there is death in the world, this world is not what we're built for. The Bible tells us directly what all human beings know intuitively. We are not meant for a world in which there is disease and suffering and death. This is not the world we were created for. But besides physical alienation, there's also social alienation. We're not socially at home either. Durkheim is right. We are socially alienated from other people. This alienation exists despite our ability to form love relationships. Why is this? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's from Genesis 3-7. What has happened? Something has shifted in their relationship that's made them self-conscious. Adam and Eve could not look at each other as they really were, even though they were made for each other. They were socially alienated. They were the only ones around, yet they covered themselves. Have you thought about that? That is so weird. And we know this social alienation continues today. It is way more profound than it was in the garden. and goes beyond clothing. 
We are uncomfortable with who we are, and we work very hard to control what people see at every level. Our relationships often are not about love and service, but are based on fear and control. We are afraid we will be exposed, and others might find out what we're really like. We're not there to love and serve them. Fig leaves are no longer considered the apparel of choice, but we cover up with image and fashion and status and wealth. We carefully control our social media posts so that people see an unblemished image that conceals who we really are. And it goes deep, affecting our relationship with those we care about the most. If you're married, who do you hurt the most? Probably your spouse, right? I can say sometimes the most thoughtless things to Leslie, who is the last person in the world who should ever have to deal with anything unkind coming from me. It's just there sometimes. This is because our human relationships can be marked by fear and image rather than love and service. There are signs of this all around us. This passage almost gets humorous as the blame game kicks up, right? It's not me, it's her. It's not me, it's that. In verses 11, 12, and 13, the man blames the woman. The woman blames nature, blames the serpent, blames the devil. And we do the same thing. Ubuntu is a wonderful word in South Africa, which means I am because we are. Basically, Ubuntu is not about me, it's about us. The community is more important than the individual. It's nice to say that, but it doesn't work. The community stays trapped in mediocrity because if someone steps out to try to do better, to improve their situation by getting an education or a better job, there is open hostility to hold them back. But if, like in our Western culture, the individual is more important than the community, then you have the complete erosion of solidarity and social institutions. The result of both of these constructs of culture is alienation. Classes alienated from each other, races alienated from each other, the nations are alienated from each other, War, crime, poverty, injustice, as well as family breakdown are all examples of what we inherently know. We are alienated socially from each other. Why? Because we're not home. We're alienated physically, we're alienated socially, and we're also alienated psychologically. We're alienated from ourselves. Let's go back to verse 10. When God says, why are you hiding from me? What does Adam say? I was afraid, so I hid. He says, they were naked. I knew I was naked, therefore I was ashamed and I hid. In the Bible, nakedness didn't just mean to be nude. It meant to be ashamed. It meant to be ashamed of who you were. What we're being told here is this. Psychological alienation means we are alienated from our true selves. Adam was afraid of God. He and God had been friends, walking together in the garden, but now Adam was fearful. And this fear works itself out in a number of ways. We feel shame. We feel fear because we know that things are not in sync. Sometimes people experience emotional detachment or a sense of emotional numbness that creates a barrier between an individual and their emotions. 
Other examples show up as a sense of identity confusion. Some people struggle with self-identity and not feeling comfortable in their own skin. This may involve confusion about one's gender, sexual orientation, or cultural identity. And in some cases, this confusion may be a temporary feeling that are brought about by a specific traumatic life event. While in others, it could be chronic and deeply ingrained as a sense of disconnection that requires intervention and support. And this is just the tip of the iceberg that identifies the ways that our psychological alienation plays out around us. We can seek to masquerade our alienation by working too hard or through various other abuses or addictions as we seek to numb the pain that we feel. We are not at ease with ourselves. There's something wrong with us. Our fig leaves might become our work or fashion or extra academic degrees. We might numb the pain in other ways or we blame others. Adam showed the way that this works, right? God you know, it's that woman you gave me. Ultimately, God, it's your fault. Or maybe the woman's, but no way is it mine. We work hard to cover up our shortcomings, to hide them from others. We go to all these great lengths because there's something psychologically wrong. We're alienated from who we really are. So before we cross over to talk about the most fundamental alienation of all, here's a summary where we are to this point. We are physically alienated. According to the Bible, the essence of sin is thinking you can live without God. A human being who is made by God, who is made for God, who is made to know and love and serve God, thinks maybe every so often I might need God a little bit for a boost but I don't need to rely on him for my moment-to-moment existence. I can live my life on my own. I don't need him. On the surface, that's what we can believe, but deep down we know it's not true. Every psychological system says you've got to come to grips with who you are, that you've got to understand who you are because you are alienated from your true self. The Bible says that without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, You will never find wholeness because alienation is deeper than anyone thinks. Finally, spiritual alienation. Yes, we're physically alienated. Yes, we're socially alienated and psychologically alienated. We're cut off from nature, from other human beings, even from our true selves. You can make yourself a great physical home. That does help. We need that. You can build community and get counseling. That's fine. But ultimately, that's not going to satisfy. What Eva Hoffman said, all those things signify something that goes much deeper. And what is the deeper thing? We're cut off from God. We're alienated from God. There's something about Eden that's ingrained within us. J.R.R. Tolkien writes, We all long for it, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. Verse 8 paints an amazing picture. Then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves 
among the trees of the garden. When the Bible talks about walking with somebody, it's talking about friendship. God has come to walk with his friends, and his friends have run away. This is the human condition. We're running from the God who wants to walk with us. We're running from the God who wants to have a relationship with us. We were home when we were walking with God. As long as we're running from God, we will never be home. We understand this alienation. We feel it deeply within us. It seeped its way into every nook and cranny of our lives. It's physical, it's social, it's psychological, but above all, it's spiritual. Adam went from being a friend of God, walking with him in the garden, enjoying intimate fellowship, to being God's enemy in an instant. And as children of Adam, the same goes for us. But God pursued Adam, and he pursues us and wants us to come home. Leslie told me that this message seems super discouraging. She's right. I'm hoping what this does is just give us the background as to what it is that's going on in our society. But now comes the hope, right? How can we come home? We run to him. We run to him. Jesus lived the life you could not live and died the death you should have died so that you can have fellowship with God restored and our spiritual alienation healed. Walking with God, seeing the face of God, experiencing the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, Eden, that was home. At home is where you're nurtured. Can you imagine what it would have been like to walk with God in the garden? Can you imagine the conversations you would have with God? Only by walking with God and hearing his word will you satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. God put us into a garden to cultivate it and work the soil. In his presence, work is nothing but satisfying. In his presence, we will do what we were built to do, to draw out the hidden potentialities of creation as his stewards. C.S. Lewis's wonderful sermon, The Weight of Glory, says this, Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice and convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth, thus giving a sop to your sense of exile in earth as it is. All of our education says if you have therapy, if we make the world a better place, if we do this and we do that, then the world will be our home in an effort to make us feel okay. Lewis is saying that this is all a lie to make us feel like we're actually at home, but we are not. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price for our rebellion. It was an astonishingly high price. He was stripped. He was naked. He was shamed, and he was mocked. Why? He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being cut off from the Father so that we could be brought in. 
Jesus was exiled on the cross when he experienced being cut off from God. That was the ultimate exile. He took the exile that we deserve so that we can return to the garden and have our fellowship with God restored. We run by him, run to him. We live by faith in the midst of our alienations with our sights set on home. It doesn't mean that we're no longer exiles, but that God's Spirit gives us the power to live for Him. I'd like to read a section from a passage in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul struggles with this thing that we all know. There's something at war within us as we try to follow Christ. Verse 14 of Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't know what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Jesus' death on the cross made it possible for our spiritual alienation to be instantly healed when we trust in him. But those other alienations, our physical alienation, our social alienations, our psychological alienation, are works in progress. God is at work to heal us, and one day it will be accomplished But until then, it's going to be a battle. God puts us in community as a church so that we can fight the battle together. It's not an easy battle, but it's easier if we're doing it together, arm in arm. This is the reality of what our alienation means. Some Christ followers struggle with depression. Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, struggled with depression most of his adult life. And at times, it was incredibly severe. His spiritual alienation was healed when he became a follower of Christ, but his psychological alienation remained a challenge most of his adult life. I spoke with someone recently who was faithfully following Jesus, but is struggling with gender dysphoria. His mind is not at home in his body. The list goes on, but my point is this. We are in a church community to carry each other as we all walk the journey towards home. We need each other as support on the journey as we pray and speak and talk about the goodness of Jesus and how he is working in our lives while living with the alienations that will one day be fully restored. The other good news is this. Once you put your trust in Christ, you can visit home. But you just can't stay there for now. Right? Home is where you have new heavens and new earth and everything is put right. You finally fit and evil and suffering are gone and death is gone. So we're not there yet. We can visit that home. We just can't stay there. We visit that home when we gather for worship or life group or when we share the Lord's Supper together or when God answers prayer. Or when the Lord works through your heart as you're listening to a sermon, when you pray, when you sense his presence, when you're with the people of God, then you are visiting home. 
And someday we will get there. As I wrap things up, I don't know what you might be dealing with this morning. It's a big crowd. We come from so many different places around our city. And there are people online as well. But I know that Jesus can bridge the spiritual alienation that you might be facing right now. You can trust in Christ. He can heal the spiritual alienation immediately when you do that. The other ones take time, and we do that in community together. But Jesus is there with you, walking with you. His Spirit fills us and walks with us. And then we, in community, encourage each other on as we head toward home. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for you. We are grateful that you have healed our spiritual alienation as we trust in you. We recognize that the reminders that we're not home yet can be strong and severe. We recognize, God, that our sin continues to cause us to stumble. But, Father, we lean into you and we lean into each other and ask that you would guide us and work within us as your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.